Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. My name is Pradeep Kamath, and I'm a pediatric critical care physician at Emory University School of Medicine. And my name is Rahul Demania, a current second year pediatric critical care fellow. Today's episode is dedicated to pediatric acute liver failure. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Rene Romero, Professor of Pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine and also the Medical Director of Liver Transplant Program at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. With that, I will turn you guys over to Dr. Demania for the case. We have a three-year-old child who presents to the PICU with decreased arousal. He is noted to be hypoglycemic. His coagulation panel is significant for increased PTT and INR. AST and ALT are significantly elevated. He is hyperaminemic. Acetaminophen level is normal. The diagnosis of acute liver failure is made. Dr. Romero, we are so glad you joined us today. I wanted to first start off by getting your thoughts on what are the basic functions of the liver and how does this relate to the definition of acute liver failure in pediatrics? Well, thank you for having me and uh, allowing me to participate in this uh, educational activity. There's a famous quote by basically the mother of hepatology, Dr. Sheila Sherlock, who said the functions of the liver are only exceeded by the tests designed to test those functions. So the liver is the workhorse of the body. It has functions with regard to metabolism, synthetic functions, immunologic functions, detoxification functions. All of these and signaling uh, have major roles in interactions with all the other organs in your body. And so it becomes challenging per the quote to have a reliable mechanism to define when the liver is failing. And it usually takes multiple pieces. So the definition of acute liver failure in adults relies not on the development hepatic encephalopathy within six to eight weeks of the onset of jaundice. Notice that there's no ALT level that defines acute liver failure. It's the onset of encephalopathy. Now for pediatrics, that becomes a bit problematic because for the youngest age groups, defining stages of encephalopathy is quite difficult. So in the last 20 years now, through the efforts of the Pediatric Acute Liver Failure Study Group, a more operational approach has been taken to try to identify that was used first in their studies to define acute liver failure as the development of a coagulopathy that wasn't correctable by vitamin K, along with demonstration of biochemical disruption, such as hypoglycemia or transaminase abnormalities, hyperbilirubinemia, but with that element of coagulopathy. And they set an operational definition that you had acute liver failure, or at least would qualify for the study if your INR was greater than two and you had any evidence of these parameters and maybe no definable encephalopathy. However, they set a lower threshold an INR of 1.5, if there was obvious hepatic encephalopathy identified. So that's how it kind of all melds together. There's a long-winded answer for it, but I think it's very important because recognition of acute liver failure is the key to successful treatment. I think that the kind of definition of acute liver failure has really evolved. And 
at the forefront of our minds are the synthetic liver function, the coagulopathy, as well as the mental status of the patient and uh, really early recognition of that encephalopathy. That's correct. Identifying that or someone who's going to be, I think the issue of the coagulopathy is identifying someone who's at risk for the development of the encephalopathy (laughs) so that you're on the lookout monitoring for it, particularly in a young child. And all of the other metabolic dysfunctions, primarily hypoglycemia, that could be accompanying that. What are the, some of the important uh, contributing etiologies to pediatric acute liver failure? Well, here again, the major publications that have come out of the Pediatric Acute Liver Failure Study Group have been vital. It's very clear that there are age-dependent etiologies over the course of the lifetime of a, a child, it's from ages zero to 18 or 21, the etiologies of acute liver failure change over the course of time. And so we can break them up into those who are under three years of age and those that are older than three years of age. So actually, out of the study, we found that most cases of acute liver failure happen under four years of age. There is a bimodal distribution under four and then older than 16 or so uh, with higher cases identified. The youngest age group, we have to think of about uh, specific infections. Now, there's also differences in different countries and in different levels of development as to the principal causes of acute liver failure. In the United States, the infectious etiologies are not the ones that come to our mind because they're labeled as hepatitis A, B, and C, but typically HSV, adenovirus, enterovirus, and these are often in the youngest age groups. Under three uh, years of age, and in particular under three months of age, there are particular etiologies that are found in neonates that are often metabolic in nature. And then we have the development of in the slightly older age groups, things like hemophagocytic uh, syndromes. Once you get into the school age and adolescence, we start seeing more of potential involvement of drugs, in particular acetaminophen. In the oldest age group, it is often the intentional overdose of acetaminophen that's the driver of acute liver failure. That's really helpful. And I think the key for our listeners is to really look at the age group which you're dealing with and the various etiologies. I think that's a great springboard into looking at the diagnostic approach in assessing acute liver failure. Do you mind helping us categorize that for our listeners? Sure. So in general, we can think of uh, several categories. And within those categories, dependent on the age, there may be priorities within those. So we can think of in, in broad strokes, infectious etiologies, so directly impacting or either the virus has a direct cytopathic effect on the liver and kills liver cells, or the virus induces an immune response that then massively causes uh, necrosis and impairs uh, function. Toxic, these might be drugs primarily. You can kind of subcategorize toxic effects from metabolic defects that lead to the production of toxic 
metabolites that uh, injure the liver. We can think of uh, vascular etiologies, the lack of blood flow, shock, ischemic, other acute thromboses, fairly rare events. And we can think of also infiltrative features. And in probably greater recognition uh, now, this category of dysfunction, which we might categorize as immune dysregulation, where the, whatever the inciting event was, be it a drug, an infection, or anything, the host response to that has led to um, a massive inflammatory response that has a direct impact on uh, liver cell health and function. Got it. I think that's a, a great framework for us as we work up pediatric acute liver failure. Besides the diagnosis, which is then followed by management uh, of the uh, patient with pediatric acute liver failure, as an ICU doc, besides managing the airway, breathing, and circulation, uh, I wanted to ask Dr. Romero if you could comment on correction of abnormal lab values, especially uh, we are tempted to correct the INR that is very high because we think the patient will bleed. And then also comment on uh, the antibiotic and antifungal prophylaxis uh, that I used in this patient. And, and lastly, about uh, fluid management and what's your take on renal replacement therapy for judicious fluid balance? Okay. Uh, remind me as we go through yes, and yes, go answer which parts I got to answer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and we'll start off with the first one. I don't remember now. <laughs> the, first, the first part was the... Coagulation correction. Coagulation correction. Okay. So, well, this has been an area of great study and evolution in practice over even the course of my career. INR is a laboratory measurement, and the PT and PTT are laboratory measurements. They are not physiologic uh, measurements. So um, we're focusing there on the proteins that are being produced by the liver that perhaps are lack of production that may predispose to less active coagulation, but there's also prothrombotic forces that are altered in this milieu of acute liver failure. So the equilibrium between those two may not really change. And so spontaneous bleeding is rarely encountered in acute liver failure. So we have become much more tolerant of these laboratory abnormalities, unless we are about to do an invasive procedure, then we would attempt to correct them at least partially. Uh, I think we've evolved to identify that volume overload from excessive transfusion is actually much, a uh, much greater problem because acute liver failure is not just acute liver failure. Acute liver failure is usually multi-organ system failure. And so all of these mediators are affecting brain, heart function, renal function. And so fluid management is often a very important component of brain health management and, of course, lung health management and renal function. So tying into that, we are often now more prone to utilize uh, renal replacement therapy to maintain euvolemia and have uh, evolved to certainly, as a child is identified in their process of getting sicker with their acute liver failure, usually once we're clearly identifying some 
degree of encephalopathy. Uh, we are at least asking ourselves in the multidisciplinary ICU setting, is this the time to implement renal replacement therapy to help manage the volume status of the patient or potentially manage toxic effects of accumulated toxins such as measurable ammonia to help facilitate that. Given again, also, this also plays a role in patients who have more advanced, at least in our center, and this varies in different centers, the use of therapeutic plasma exchange kind of as a adjunct to the management of that systemic inflammatory response. And so that is an add-on component to this kind of stair-stepped approach to the management of a child with acute liver failure. It's what we utilize in this at this center. Excellent. Yeah, and uh, Dr. Romero, can you comment on uh, using uh, prophylactic antifungal antibiotics? So th this is very controversial overall. I think we have to be, so the practices vary significantly from institution to institution because it's been challenging to get good data on this. We clearly know that there is a risk of bacteremia and fungemia in a patient with acute liver failure. It's partly in, inherent to the the loss of the immune surveillance from the liver because of the death of the, the liver tissue and all that portal venous blood not being filtered and signaled appropriately. That's part of it. It's also part of the support that we're giving with invasive lines and, and monitoring. So in general, any decompensation has to be thought of as a potential superinfection and empiric antibiotics and potential antifungal started in that setting. Many centers implement prophylactic antibiotics if a patient is listed for liver transplant for acute liver failure. The timing of that, of course, varies at, depending on the circumstances. Dr. Romero, as an ICU doctor, I am very uh, concerned about uh, protecting the brain uh, and cerebral protection. Can you comment on uh, what ammonia value concerns you and what's your approach to hyperammonemia that happens from acute liver failure? So this too has its controversies and <laughs> lack of established parameters. So number one, when there is encephalopathy and signs of in general, we are trying to prevent brain from swelling within that fixed encased area of the, of the skull, right? And our approach is multi-pronged, treating precipitants of that, and that's often infection, renal dysfunction. Those are things that definitely cause not only ammonia, but inflammatory signals to cause brain swelling. So we're carefully monitoring the neurologic status for any deepening coma. We will become more aggressive uh, with deeper stages of impairment. Once we are into what we would call stage three, non uh, beginning to be non-responsive, we will end up increasing serum sodiums to improve, kind of dehydrate, uh, if you will, the liver, usually not going above 140 and certainly not 150, borrowing from information from brain trauma. We've gone away from the use of mannitol, but that can sometimes be used in patients who still have preserved renal function. And those patients are usually already intubated by that stage when we're getting into that to, again, protect the airway, also afford us the ability, if need be, with acute rises 
of with hyperventilation. I think the, and of course, we're managing ammonia also through the renal replacement therapy at that stages. The measurement of ammonia is problematic. Ideally, should be arterial, placed on ice, processed rapidly. The initial stages of identifying encephalopathy have to be clinical. It is not determined by a venous ammonia. But a persistently elevated uh, uh, venous ammonia above 100 usually is indicating that you should be paying attention to their, very carefully to their neuro status for potentials for decompensation. You may already see the value of a venous ammonia at which you might see impairment could vary from patient to patient. Okay, so the number itself is not the issue. The, it's the number in comparison to that individual patient and what they're doing. Absolutely. And I think that that is a really uh, nice summary in terms of making sure that both from a coagulation standpoint, as well as from a mental status and encephalopathy standpoint, that we're actually treating the patient and not necessarily the number. Dr. Kamath, just wanted to wrap up with this question. Is there a role for intracranial pressure monitoring when children have uh, hyperammonemia? I think this is, uh, just to quote Dr. Romero, this is another one of those controversial and as well as a center-dependent thing to do. At our center, we have used uh, intracranial monitors in patients who have pediatric acute liver failure and who get intubated. So we don't have a very good neuro exam on those patients. Uh, and this is, again, surgeon-dependent. We, uh, we talk to our uh, hepatology team, our surgeons, and the neurosurgeons, because uh, imagine putting a, a monitor in, in someone's brain whose uh, you know, INR is elevated. You know, it's a question of risk versus benefit. Uh, but we have a discussion with our uh, team, prior, and we, we, we do this on a case-by-case basis. But I would like to uh, see what Dr. Romero has to say regards to ICP monitoring. Yes, I think it's very, it is definitely controversial. It's not been shown in adults to have a, a survival benefit. In general, we had been using it more in the past than we have uh, lately. There is an evolution in some other monitoring techniques uh, like pulse, uh, ultrasound determination of pulsatility of, of the optic nerve and the edema of the optic nerve. That's been evolving. I think this is an area of intense research would be great for uh, ICU doctors to focus on this. Uh, what biomarkers could we use to ultimately identify brain swelling? There's been some work in this area recently. It is a challenging uh, aspect of acute uh, liver failure. The proper identification and timely management of cerebral edema, because that is the mode of death, unfortunately, for the patients who progress and who are not transplanted or who have uh, liver transplant as a contraindication, that is the mode of death for these patients. Now, thank you so much for uh, highlighting and especially your thoughts throughout today's episode. To really summarize for our listeners, I think we have talked about how acute liver failure is really a systemic disease. And a large percentage of acute liver failure in pediatrics is idiopathic. However, it really depends based on what age group you're in. In terms of the 
diagnostic approach, it's really important to be broad, assessing the synthetic liver function, infectious etiologies, as well as uh, toxins. And then that really can help optimize management as well as uh, transition the patient to potential transplant evaluation. I want to put in the plug again for standardization of approach and orders, particularly, uh, you know, in, in referrals in, in centers in the community, it'd be great to borrow from uh, some of the transplant centers, their diagnostic order set that's age dependent. And then in each of the centers, of course, a standardized approach to different stages of acute encephalopathy and the implementation of different supportive techniques dependent on the progression of the of the disease is important. And none of us are on 24 hours, seven days a week, even in a major center like ours. Uh, we see five to seven cases in a year. Having a standardized approach to management is best for the patient and for the whole entire team. Thank you so much for highlighting that important concept of standardization. This concludes our episode today on acute liver failure in pediatrics. We hope you found value in this short podcast and we welcome you to share your feedback and place a review on our podcast. Pick Your Doc on Call is co-hosted by myself, Dr. Rahul Demania, and my mentor, Dr. Pradeep Gamat. Thank you so much, Dr. Romero, for your time and listeners, stay tuned for our next episode. My pleasure. I'm not the one